0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you, you for coming. We're discussing Srila Jiva Goswami's 90th Anāchēda, the relationship between Maya and both Paramatma and the Jiva, and the Achinta <coughs> aspect of the Lord's external potency. Achinta, in, inconceivable but not that it's kept secret to the devotees. So that specific aspect of the Ajintas Shakti will be revealed as we go into this evening's discussion, that this knowledge is available for the devotees to understand. And the logicians and the armchair spiritualists, let them say what they will. And Krishna gives them some leniency in that regard. And he speaks of that leniency in a verse to Uddhava, which we will also come to this evening. So Vidura placed those questions from the third canto. And just to quickly review them, because they are so significant. It's really a quandary i mean what Vidura has done here is quite quite comprehensive and quite necessary for us to have a full understanding and appreciation for the lord's maya shakti so he's he's brought these questions up in such a way that there's there's a lot to be covered here how do we explain all these things away it's It seems logic will not do it. But still, he's presented his questions in a very logical manner to Maitreya. O Brahmana, how can Bhagavan, who is consciousness alone, immutable and free of the gunas, become involved with the gunas and functions of Prakriti, even as a matter of cosmic play, Leela? A child is impelled to play out of his own desire or due to another child's wish to play. How can this be so for Bhagavan, who is fully satisfied in his own self and ever detached from any other thing? As a pastime, Paramatma, oops, I'm sorry, through his own Maya, Consisting of the three gunas, Bhagavan evolved the universe. Through her, he regulates it and shall cover it up again. How can that entity, the jiva, who is intrinsically of the nature of consciousness, that is never obscured by space, time, or circumstance, either by itself or through any other cause, be associated with the unborn maya? this Bhagavan, who is one alone, exists in all fields, how then can that one, the Jīva, experience misfortune and distress as a consequence of conditional action, karma? Such is Bhagavan's extrinsic potency. Now we get to Maitreya's response. Such is Bhagavan's extrinsic potency, which contradicts all logic. For, due to its influence, the living entity, who by nature is a ruler and liberated, experiences impoverishment and bondage. So this particular verse that I just read, Maitreya's response to these inquiries by Vidura, is the, is at the heart of the 90th Anacheda. So Jiva begins this Anacheda, as follows it is not possible that the supreme is mere consciousness alone therefore accepting the truth of bhagavan's omnipotency that the absolute possesses inconceivable potencies in his essential nature shri maitreya replies as follows such as Bhagavan's extrinsic potency, maya, which contradicts all logic. For, due to its influence, the living entity, who by nature is a ruler and liberated, experiences impoverishment and bondage. So we can see that Maitreya begins by explaining the last questions, responding to the last questions of Vidura, regarding the Jiva. How can the pure Jiva, who himself is transcendental to material involvement, how can he be involved in material affairs? It's not of his nature. His nature is, is consciousness, like Paramatma. And the two of them hold that in common. They both are Conscious, so Maitreya begins by saying it's simply due to the inconceivable potency of the Lord's Maya Shakti. Well, that makes it easy, doesn't it? We'll just say, Well, it's any time we come up to a question we like this, where how does this happen? We just that's just inconceivable. No one can understand it. So let's just accept it and just go on with life. God does things in mysterious ways and we should just accept that. He can have a Maya that can put you, a pure spirit soul, in complete bewilderment. He can be involved in the manifestation of a material creation separate from his own very own self with his, which is the antithesis of his spiritual nature. He's Ananda. and the material world is anything but Ananda. A lot of it eternality. Everything here is a place it's a bit your loka. Everything here is is gone here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> so Sat Chit. Ananda, conscious. The Lord's fully conscious and aware of everything and everything that we experience in in the material world is devoid of consciousness, basically, for the most part. And if I do come across somebody else that's conscious or some other conscious entity or plant or whatever, they don't see things the way I do so somebody's wrong i'm right and they're all wrong that's basically the way we approach our life <laughs> i have the right viewpoint and you don't <laughs> i have the right everything's right about me and everything if you don't see the all the right in me then you must be wrong <laughs> An Ananda, yeah, Ananda's—it's few and far between here. So how can a God who whose characteristics are Sat-Chita-Nanda create from his very self this environment, which is the antithesis of of that? Achintya, he just can. So, yeah, he just can. All right. So why is it we, as as devotees, can accept that? Because it is not a logical response. It's not a logical way from... A materialistic, materialist viewpoint of responding to that kind of a question. How did the Lord make the world and not get involved and how are we who are pure of the nature of pure consciousness and ourselves eternal, full of knowledge and fully blissful in our true nature conditioned by material existence? So are we just going to let the sadhus off this easily? Oh, okay, Maitreya, fine, Achinta. So you really don't want to answer my question. Is that the way we look at Maitreya's response here? Such as Bhagavan's extrinsic potency, Maya, which contradicts all logic. Okay, so you don't have to be logical. You could just contradict logic in your response. And for due to its influence, the living entity, who by nature is a ruler and liberated, that's who I am, a ruler, I'm liberated, experiences impoverishment and bondage. A So, this kind of a transcendent response does require some serious exploration on the part of the spiritual aspirant. We shouldn't just blindly accept this kind of response without some further inquiry. We would be depriving ourselves if we did. What would we call that? We wouldn't call it wise love. We would call it blind following. And what happens when the blind follow the blind? Everyone follows the ditch. So we're not, we're not, although we, we take the instructions of Maitreya Muni as, as a beacon for our spiritual enlightenment, we don't take his instructions lightly. We don't take them off, just ex- accept them off the cuff. We accept them because, because they fully correspond to a whole, a whole canon of transcendental knowledge that's presented by Guru, Sadhu and Shastra. And it's not just put forth lightly he's not saying this is inconceivably inconceivable lightly what what he's what he's imploring us to do is now understand the inconceivable can you do that can you defy the logic of your material conditioning and enter deeply into spiritual revelation If you're willing to go there with me, then you can understand this fully. So Jiva's, in this Anucheta, going to set us in that direction. And he's going to allow us to see, through a dialogue of the demigods, the demigods had some prayers that they offered, at the time that Vritrasura arrived on the scene and was about to create havoc. Imagine, Vritrasura. It's a long story, but this guy was was no lightweight. And here he is coming as the result of a Brahmana's curse to kill the King of Heaven, their leader. They're a little bit... What did Indra do? killed a Brahmin. He killed a Brahmin. So what kind of a reaction is this demon, what kind of havoc is he going to be able to wreck in our neighborhood? This is not going to be lightweight. So the demigods are, they pray. They're praying here to Krishna. And First, they're extolling his transcendental nature, his achinta nature, his inconceivable nature. They're reminding him of the fact that he might want to intervene on their behalf. Indra might not be able to handle it. That's their fear. So, We know you're God, and we know you don't get involved in material. In fact, you're fully transcendental. It's interesting that this is where Jiva Goswami goes in the Bhagavatam to give us that entrance into the concept of inconceivability, because the prayers of the demigods made to Krishna at that time fully express that inconceivable nature of the Lord. And, nicely enough, Vishuddha Chakravarti Thakur gives us a hint to what he feels. Krishna's viewpoint is when he hears these prayers. Oh, really? I'm not involved in material? You say I'm not involved in material nature? Well, how does that work? We're going to go into some very interesting areas here in this dialogue. But we'll continue first with the Anacheda. That by which the creation of the world is conducted is this potency, this Maya potency. Jiva says, called Maya, a Bhagavan who possesses inconceivable potency in his essential nature. His Swarup Shakti is inconceivable chinta swarup shakti. This maya contradicts logic, which means that because it is beyond rational argument, it too is inconceivable, Achinta. So not only is his swarup shakti inconceivable, his maya shakti is also inconceivable. Although both are thus inconceivable, yet because it has been clearly stated The Maya belonging to Bhagavan, and because his essential potency is intrinsic, he is not touched by sattva and the other gunas of the extrinsic Maya, nor by his own cosmic play in the form of universal sustenance and so on, which are effects of the gunas. So Jiva's just explaining this verse in his own words at this stage in this Anucheda. He continues, In him there is not merely consciousness alone. It's not just that God's aware. He's got a lot more going on than just awareness. It's not just conscious awareness that makes God God. The fact that he's omnipresent. He's also omnipotent. So, he's saying, there is not, there is not merely consciousness alone. Sanskrit is chin matratva. The meaning of the second quarter of the verse, according to the Tantra, the system involving the derivation of two or more meanings from a statement is as follows. First, reading the pronoun, pronoun yat, standing for maya as yaya, with whom. The first meaning is this, of the second little part of the verse. Such is Bhagavan's maya, with whom there is no opposition with regard to him, Bhagavan. Meaning that she does not make him the object of her opposition. It's inconceivable, but also see in this verse the fact that the potency, this potency of the Lord, Maya Shakti is not in itself it's not opposed to the Lord. It's not an object of her imposement or imposing her potency upon it. So she surrendered to She's subordinate, yes meaning that she does not make him an object of her opposition. The second meaning, or alternatively, reading yat as ya, which it would read, such is Bhagavan's maya, which is without exclusion or neglect with regard to him, Bhagavan. She's not fully independent. So two meanings Jiva is saying we can see here. One is we can see that the Maya potency is not, cannot exert her influence upon Bhagavan. Or we can take another reading to the very same verse and say that such as Bhagavan's Maya, which is without exclusion or neglect with regard to him. In other words, it has his best interest at heart. It's not not completely independent of him as far as what his desire is. So it can't roll over him and it works in subordination or does not neglect him. The word neglect is also used here. Meaning that in no way can Maya take him for a non-entity. Implying that she is completely unable to act independently of him. He's the main entity. Now we move on to Jiva's utilization of the prayers of the demigods to enter more deeply into this understanding. So he continues as follows. Similarly, in the prose portion of the ninth chapter of the sixth canto, beginning with verse 6, 9, the idea of Bhagavans being an agent under the gunas is first opposed. Now, here the devas, the demigods, are telling God, what is his nature, as a way of supplication and glorification. So he quotes, then in the next, no he doesn't quote yet, then in the next passage the possibility is raised that he becomes implicated in empirical experiencing like the jiva due to entering the innumerable bodies generated by the Gunas as their eminent indweller, Anturyami. Finally, in 6.9.36, in the conclusion of the argument, the element of a trans-rational potency, avitrak yasaktitva, is applied to both sets of circumstances. First set, first circumstance being the agent of creation without undergoing transformation, by the gunas, and the second being the indwelling support in all bodies without becoming implemented in their experience. Indeed, neither of these alternatives are incompatible in you. Now we're going to impact, unpack this a lot more, so we'll just go through Jiva's commentary here and then go further into Vishwanath's explanation, which is really revealing his commentary on these verses specifically. The transrational nature of the intrinsic potency is shown in the same passage. By the various modifiers describing Bhagavan, beginning with Bhagavati, and by the specific reference to the extrinsic potency, Maya, as being his very own, Atma Maya, under his control. In that same text, the phrase, being devoid of both forms, Swarup Dwayabhavat, indicates that by his inconceivable power, he is the agent behind the universe and also within it. So these are the two points that the devas raised. And then as the verses, as the prayers continue, they explain them themselves. In the next text, it, the next text informs us that Bhagavan appears in those distinct wave, ways, either as transcendental or is apparently conditioned to people of developed and undeveloped intelligence, respectively. In the earlier prose text, the word asarira without a body means without bodily endeavor, and asarana means without the support of the elements beginning with earth. So I'm going to jump to the commentary for a while and then we'll come back. So in verse 372, back to the discussion between Maitreya and Vidura. So we're going between two different discussions in the Bhagavatam. The one is the questions of Vidura placed to Maitreya. And now we're coming to the first response from Maitreya. And then in unpacking that first response regarding the achinta nature of maya, the inconceivability of the fact that the Jiva can become j- bewildered by the Maya potency because of its purity and its, its nature as being pretty similar to God's nature as far as consciousness goes and as far as not being influenced, but then becoming influenced by Maya. So the commentary reads as follows. We'll just begin here. In the verse, Vidura said that Bhagavan is Chinmatra, exclusively of the nature of consciousness. Does this mean that like Brahman of Advaitavad, he has no other attributes? Because Advaitavad, I guess we can accept that Advaitavad accepts the Supreme Brahman as being an awareness, aware without any specific characteristics. So, what we're looking at is when we look to this statement regarding Bhagavan, that he's consciousness, does that mean he's, that's all he is? He's just Awareness. So, if we're going to look at the Supreme Absolute Truth as simply consciousness, then our viewpoint is akin to that of the Brahmavadi. And is that the only way you want to see the Supreme Absolute Truth? Or is there more to him than that? Does this mean that like the Advaitins, he has no other attributes? Sri Jiva says no. This is not the intention of Vidura's statement. What he means by Chinmatra is that there is no achit or inert matter in his Swaroop. In other words... He's saying the Lord is consciousness and his consciousness is, is pure, but his referring to him as just consciousness means you can't attribute to him any of the influence of the external potency, the Maya Shakti. There's nothing inert. There's no, nothing inert in him. He's only consciousness is, is what we're saying here. Suffix matra is applied here in the sense of entirely or entirety. This does not de- deny the existence of cos- conscious attributes in him. Accepting this meaning of chin matra, the sage Maitreya replies that Maya belongs to Bhagavan. Bhagavan has swarup shakti or inherent potency. One of the characteristics of Bhagavan is that his swarup shakti is achinta, transrational, or beyond the jurisdiction of conventional logic. This was established in the Sandarbha. Maya also belongs to him. So he has his internal potency, this swarup shakti, it's intrinsic nature. And he also has maya. And it belongs to him. It's his. And maya too is beyond logic a chincha. In fact, in Bhagavata Sandhava, it was shown that all energies are a chincha. All of the Lord's potencies are inconceivable. They're beyond our conception. When we say, you know, strength, beauty, fame knowledge, renunciation. The level to which the Supreme has these potencies is inconceivable to us. They're all inconceivable from our point of view. In fact, we have statements in Scripture where even the Supreme himself Says he cannot reach the limit of understanding his inconceivable potencies. So that's how, that's how inconceivable they are. That they're even beyond his ability to fathom their complete depth. Although both the intrinsic energy, the Lord Swaroop Shakti, and the extrinsic energy, Maya, are achintya. The specific phrase, phrase, bhagavato maya, the maya of Bhagavan, implies that Bhagavan is the owner of maya, whereas maya is the owned. Just as when a person owns a car. And any change in the car does not affect a change in the surupa, the owner. So if we have a car, it doesn't really affect our nature. The analogy is taking us into a very simple understanding is, just as you own your car, it doesn't really affect who you are and what you are. Because the car is not part of his swarup, although owned by him. Similarly, the phrase Bhagavata Maya implies that Bhagavan is free of Maya, and any modification, evolution, or action within the Maya field cannot alter the swarup of Bhagavan. Maya being his extrinsic potency, this answers the question raised in Anucheta eighty nine. One may raise an objection that the intrinsic energy also belongs to Bhagavan. So does this mean that Bhagavan remains unaffected even by changes in the intrinsic potency? (laughs) If he's not affected by Maya, why would she, who which is his external energy? His maya shakti, which he owns, well, he certainly owns himself, his internal potency, so, well, does that mean it doesn't have any effect on him either? He's unaffected by his internal energy? The answer is no. This is not true. The intrinsic energy is the very swarup, or inherent nature of Bhagavan. Any change in it will also reflect in Bhagavad. This is why it is called Swarup Shakti. And Maya is not admitted as part of his Swarup. So before we get too far along in this, I am going to jump out to a little bit of an explanation from Vishwanath Chakravarti. So these, these verses from the demigods are very much... a core to this particular Anucheta, core in our understanding of the inconceivable nature of the Lord's extrinsic potency, and core to the responses, to the response as to all the questions of the How is this? How is this happening? Can we... So, as I said, when we opened this evening, it's more than just saying, well, it's a chinta, it's inconceivable. Well, let's, we need to dive into what does inconceivable mean? I mean, we're, we're not going to just let it go at inconceivable. Otherwise, it's just blind faith. Oh, okay. The scripture says it's unconceivable. So fine. it's our acharyas are, are are not providing transcendental knowledge in that way they completely unpack it they completely give us entry into the mysteries that are aren't available the understandings that aren't available to the dry logicians to the armchair spiritualist because they'll never accept That kind of a response. It's well-reasoned faith. Because without deep reasoning, without fine discrimination, we're not going to enter into these mysteries of the Lord's inconceivable nature. So the the background of the story, I think you're all familiar, that Indra lost his priest. I think he was being a little naughty. Was it Brihaspati just said, I'm not doing your bidding anymore. Look at the way you're acting. You're not even acting like, you know, uh, not being very moral. I forget what Indra did, probably. One of the many things Indra does sometimes due to his uh, his position, it's carried away with himself from time to time. Anyway, he offended, he offended Brihaspati. And Brihaspati left him. So now here's Indra. He doesn't have anybody to perform his sacrifice, sacrifices. sacrifices. And uh, without those, you know, it's part of their nature. The devas actually, you know, perform sacrifices regularly for for their betterment and the betterment of, uh, of the universe that they're presiding over. So he... Uh, he called in uh, viswarupa to fill in he was a little he was given a little bit of warning the brahmin said this 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 he's he's a competent priest but you know ritrasura also has uh, a bit of a background and uh, due to his family heritage he but anyway he'll do he'll do the job for you they didn't explain it deeply enough or indra wasn't that keen on hearing the full background. So uh, he didn't, even if he heard it, he didn't take heed of the fact that uh, uh, Visvarupa's mother, I believe, was came from a demoniac background. So he was offering the sacrifice, and then on the side, he was offering a little bit to, you know, the demoniac <laughs> side of his family, because, come on, they have to eat too. <laughs> and it came to Indra's attention. Uh, here's, you have this priest performing sacrifices for the benefit of the demigods. And, and you, you realize you see that he's actually doing some offerings on the side, chanting some <laughs> other mantras and, you know, <laughs> appeasing the, the demoniac people, which are your enemies. Indra said, well, I can't have that. And he cut his head off. Wow. Well, that didn't go over very well <laughs> with his father. I mean, you invite my son to be your priest and he's performing the sacrifices on your behalf. And yes, I understand. It. You know, I did have a wife that was a little bit of that nature, but he you know, he's doing a good job for you. Cut his head off. So he got angry. as see, I'm sure you could understand. So Twasta, his father, performed his own sacrifice. He wasn't a lightweight in the sacrifice department. So he performed a sacrifice and out came Ritrasura. And there's a whole story, backstory there and we would be here for hours and we should be here for hours learning and Rehearing all these wonderful pastimes of Krishna's devotees, but uh, the de- the demon that Twasta conjured up was a devotee in the disguise of a demon. We had demoniac. I mean, he was he looked like a demon for all intents and purposes. He acted like a demon, but his heart was in the right place. So. That's a little back story on these prayers that Twasta has just conjured up this huge demoniac personality. And, you know, the demigods are like, I don't know if Indra can handle this guy. And then the whole Narayan Kavacha comes into play and all the prayers are given to empower the, you know, the weapon of Indra... So it's a very long story, and it's so significant because it's one of the characteristics when we look to finding the Srimad Bhagavatam. Out of all the various Puranas, what is that most ideal Purana? It's the Bhagavat Purana, and what's one of the characteristics that the sages always point to of the Bhagavat Purana? It contains the story of Vritrasura. So it's a significant, significant contribution to the overall uh, Bhagavat presentation. I'm just getting started and we will in the next class read these prayers which bring out the philosophy which allows us to enter into the inconceivable nature of Krishna's Maya potency, and how how it comes about, and how it doesn't affect him, but how it affects the Jiva. Thank you so much for your association.